Hello and welcome to this episode of Superhero Ethics. Today we are continuing our conversation with Jessica Plummer about the history of the Silver Age of comics. All that and more after this commercial break we have no control over. Welcome back. I'm Matthew. I'm joined again by our host, Jessica Plummer. Jessica, obviously the Silver Age has a lot to talk about because we're now on our second episode about it. Uh, yeah, it's I I love the Silver Age. I could talk about it for ages. <laughs> awesome. Well, I, I was teasing you a little bit before about how when you were first telling me what we were talking about, it was, well, we're mostly going to talk about Marvel and we might touch on DC. And then, you know, you went straight to the DC stuff because there's so much there to talk about, too. I just, I love them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think it's great. I think it's um, I, I have much more of a Marvel background, you have much more of a DC background, but part of what I'm really enjoying about this process is seeing how much those two, you know, they're, they're, they're separate in some places, they're overlapping in some places, and really that they're, they're both kind of feeding into each other in, in how they're, they're um, shaping this comics history we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I always say, it's it's the same people going back and forth between the two companies and they're looking at what's working for each other and they're copying those ideas and I we're all the better for it. Right. And that's actually a I want to dive we were in the middle of talking about the Marvel effect of the sixties, and we'll get back to that in a second. But I want to start with kind of a broader um question i don't know how much you know about sort of the the sociology of comics fans at this time but maybe you can make it up and we'll all believe you because you probably know more than any <laughs> of us at this point is the would most kids who read comic books happily you know go to the newsstand and buy a copy of fantastic four while also buying superman or would you have like you know the group of kids who love dc and they're teasing their friends because they love marvel and batman's better or captain america's better you know i I'm not totally sure, but I would, I think this is really where um, readers start to pull away into those brands, into that brand loyalty. And that is very much a Marvel thing. It is something that Stan Lee, I mean, last time we were talking about how Stan Lee was a showman and a self-aggrandizer. And it's absolutely true to Stan Lee's benefit, but it was also very, very true to Marvel's benefit. And I say Mm -hmm. all this, I say this with immense love um but he he made marvel into a cohesive brand um with a certain there was a a very holistic uh way of addressing the reader so if you read these comics there's the the narration boxes talk directly to the reader um they refer to the Marvel creators and employees as like with fun nicknames like Stan the Man or Smiling Stan and King Kirby and um all the like just ridiculous names. Right. Um some of them are very uh like uh Jazzy Johnny for John Romita Sr. Like they're very stupid names. Um but they they'll have uh comics that take place inside the bullpen so you can get to know the staffers. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. And they refer to like the Marvel age of comics. They refer to um, DC as both the distinguished competition, but it's kind of snide and brand, (laughs) but it's kind of loving. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And, it's very much like, are you going to read Marvel comics or are you going to read brand? Yeah. 
but in an affectionate, playful, competitive way. Um, they, uh, Stanley would address Marvel fans as true believers. And so it becomes very much a part of your identity to be a Marvel reader. Um, and that was something that was deliberately cultivated by Stan and by Marvel. So whether that was a thing that was already naturally happening, I don't know, right. but I would venture to say that it increased very much at this time. I have to imagine you had an awful lot of households where the father and maybe even the mother who had grown up reading Superman and Wonder Woman and Batman and were now tearing their hair out that their kids are like, ah, that's company. Ugh, I want to you know, read about <laughs> the Fantastic Four or X-Men. I mean, I'm sure there were there, familial battles or like <laughs> the younger sibling is reading Superman and the older sibling is like, that's for kids. I'm reading Spider-Man. Right, of course, the, the cool one. And so let's talk about, um, we talked a lot about the, the Marvel method and Lee and Kirby. Um, let's talk about the specific comics we're talking about. Obviously, the Fantastic Four, uh, they're, they're the ones that started all out. Take us down the list and let's talk for a minute about some of the other major names that are now um, obviously a huge part of our culture today. But the ones that get released during this time, some of which to big fanfare, some of which are surprisingly, maybe given how big they are today, pretty small potatoes even back then. Yeah, so um, between like 61 and 66, we see Marvel is just like slamming them out. Like all these major characters, all these characters have been in movies. Most of them have been in a whole bunch of movies that have made billions of dollars now. (laughs) Um, So the biggest ones at the time, like the ones that were basically the ones that were important before the MCU was a thing. Uh Uh, We get the Fantastic Four in 61. In 62, uh, we get the Hulk and uh, Thor, which are both by Lee and Kirby. Um, And we get Spider-Man, who is created uh, by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. In 63, uh, we get the Avengers. Mm -hmm. Um, So the characters had all already existed. The original lineup is Ant-Man, the Wasp, Iron Man, Thor, and the Hulk. Um, they're just brought together for the first time in the Avengers number one, which is by Lee and Kirby. Um, and they bring Captain America back from the, I mean, nobody knew what had happened to Captain America. <laughs> they just stopped publishing him. But in Avengers number four, they're like, oh, he was frozen in the ice, but he's back now. Here he is. And I want to ask you uh, about this team up thing. But but first, we mentioned Iron Man. So I want to uh, let you put a mi- put to bed a myth that I think is still held by many people. The, the the character of Iron Man and the song Iron Man. There's no connection between these two at all, right? Not that I know of. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, from, no, I don't think so. From what I've read, both uh, of the music history and the comics history is that they the the two were not really connected, and that as it, it's pretty clear that Ozzy Osbourne and Black Sabbath did not even know about the the character when they wrote the song. No, I no. Um. So yeah, uh, uh, 63 gives us the Avengers, and speaking of teams, it also gives us the X-Men, the original lineup of the X-Men. Um, and those are sort of the the very big, big, big names um, that really sort of changed the face of comics at the time. Um, but we also have a number of other really characters who are now household names. Um, Iron Man, as I mentioned, is one of them. Uh, he shows up in 63. Um He's another uh, Lee and Kirby creation. We get uh, Ant-Man, 
in 62 and the wasp shows up as a supporting character for him in 63 lee and kirby again Mm -hmm. dr strange in 63 that's lee and ditko um uh iron man did i say iron man yeah well iron man so he's thought of as like a very prominent character now but that's mostly because of the movies he was like a b or c lister before um (laughs) You're gonna get letters about that one. Oh, well, no, but I, I think it, I think it's very list, not C. Sorry. I think that that that's actually something I think is very well understood, and I've actually seen a lot of great writing about this idea that part of what has made the MCU successful, a, is the fact that for many people this was their first introduction to those characters. You know, like I, yeah. any Batman I see is compare is competing with me for my six year old memory of Michael Keaton or my nine year old memory of Michael Keaton. I'm bad at math. Um, whereas like Thor, Captain America, it's their first appearance for many people. But the other thing is that my understanding is that a lot of the MCU came about because the bigger names had all, had all been sold off. You know, Fantastic Four mm-hmm. had been sold to another company so they could make movies with it. Spider-Man had been, um, Fantastic Four done so badly. I mean, like it, it, it at first surprised me when I realized that the Fantastic Four is considered the most famous of the Marvel comics originally because it's the one that at least in the in this modern era has done so badly on screen compared to everything else. But but then it actually makes sense is that that was the one that people would be most wanting to make movies of 20 years ago. Uh, and so other people would have the rights in the way that who'd want to buy the rights to Iron Man or Thor 20 years ago. Yeah, exactly. They sold off Spider-Man. They sold off Fantastic Four. They sold off the X-Men, um, which is a huge property because it encompasses anybody who is a mutant. Um, and... Yeah, it that's why they had to go they had to go to the uh second string for their movies and it worked really well because like you said nobody had that that um childhood preset. memory to compete with. Right, they didn't have that childhood memory and they didn't even have um like well I guess that mainly it's it's other multimedia appearances but even really well-known comics to reference like they just they they were yeah they were blank slates um there's a couple of other uh or a few other characters um from this era um we get black widow uh as a as an iron man villain actually um in 64 we get daredevil um who was created by stan lee and bill everett in uh 64 as well um and we get black panther showing up in an issue of Fantastic Four in 1966. And he was not a major character at the time. Like he is, he, he's a supporting character in this issue of Fantastic Four. But of course he is obviously a extremely financially successful now, but B he was the first black superhero in mainstream American comics. Right. Um, Marvel would not get another one until the Falcon in 1969 and DC would not have one until John Stewart, uh, the who is a Green Lantern character in 1971. Right. So, and I want there's a bunch of things that you dropped that I want to talk about, but let's dive into Black Panther. So, what what was how important was it when that came out? Was it a lot of controversy? Was it a um, something that was kind of a risk for Marvel to do? Honestly, I'm not sure. Um, I I know that uh, it was important to to Lee and Kirby to tell stories about um, social justice and to include a certain amount of diversity that, you know, with the large grain of salt that they were 
white men of their time. Right. Um, and they were working from that place of relative privilege, um, despite being Jewish in the forties and despite, and, and the decades after obviously. And, and, um, despite, uh, coming from working class backgrounds, but, um, I think it was also, I mean, it was new and it was shocking. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was also to a certain extent, very much in keeping with, um, earlier stories and, uh, pulp stories of characters, you know, finding magical lands in exotic locales. I mean, Wakanda is Mm Shangri-La. Uh, you know, it's, it's all of these, uh, mysterious places with, uh, locals who have, secret technology and magic and powers um it was just that that wakanda and the black panther and t'challa are treated with dignity in this story and and he is treated right from the start as an equal and a fellow hero which is not to say i mean there is some language in that comic that um it yeah (laughs) it's no good it's no good (laughs) yeah i think the way you way you put it about sort of, you know, this is white men trying to write black liberation um, with both all of the good intentions and the problems that that that, that can lead to. And Black Panther is a character I've studied quite a bit because I've been very fascinated by it. One thing I think is here, I think especially it's it helpful to sort of put Black Panther's origins into the cultural milieu that we're talking about in that, you know, it's the height of civil rights uh, or Civil rights is starting to, to to merge into you know anti poverty and the Vietnam struggle, anti Vietnam struggle, and things like that. But still, the divides of over civil rights are are very big and a very important thing. And writing a character about a strong black character who lives in a you know powerful black run world um, is a very I mean that's an inherently incredible political statement. But at the same time, also it's not. I think how to best say this. It doesn't feel like it's groundbreaking in terms of media in general because this is the time we're starting to see that all over the place. You know, Star Trek is putting a black character into space and media and movies are doing a lot more with this. Um, Not that this is a perfect work of historical sociology, but uh, Hairspray, which is a a favorite uh, movie and, and musical of mine. You know, a, a big joke about that is that to the young, you know, if you're a hip teenager, then black music and black culture are the cool things. And there's obviously a huge amount of problems with that. But to me, that's a kind of nice reminder of this is a period in time when bringing in like the black character on, on the show, the black char- the, the black um, comic book hero, whatever it is. That's something that like a part of the culture is definitely moving to, even though another large part of it is very against it. Yeah, and it's also, I mean, it's it's important to note too that while it is it's so crucial that this character was introduced and that this, this barrier was broken, um, he's there for this issue. He's not a recurring member of the cast. He's they go back to New York. He's still in Wakanda, and he shows up occasionally. Right. And eventually, years later, he would become an Avenger and obviously like get his own comic much later and and move up to a more prominent status within the Marvel universe. But 
at first it's just here's this story about this guy, right. which is very much how, um, for example, uh, DC's introduction of Jon Stewart is very much like here's this story about this guy. The white characters learned a valuable lesson about racism. <laughs> Let's go back to what we were doing. Yeah, like I know a lot of a lot of the the Black Panther character really only takes off, unfortunately, during the black exploitation era when there's a lot of sort of like the there's a whole cultural history behind that that it's very much not in my lane, but but it's another important thing to remember. Is that kind of an how intentional is that? Like do you think there was an element of Lee and Kirby and other people trying to kind of dip their toes into the water because they wanted to eventually write regular characters of color or of other backgrounds? Or or is it just it's not even occurring to them, they just want to add this character for, as you say, the to teach the white characters an important lesson? Honestly, I genuinely don't know. And it's another it's another one of those things that is like sort of a shrouded in myth like that. Right. You know, if you could ask them today, what would what they said now reflect how they felt then, which again, I'm not I don't mean to be I don't mean to question their hearts yeah. it's just hard to remember yeah, and it, <laughs> what you were doing 60 years ago i can't remember what i was doing six days ago i, I think it, um, and i think the word you used before about mythology makes a lot of sense you know clearly lee and kirby cared a lot about justice and cared a lot about their comics being uh, a voice for that we're going to get into that a lot more when we start talking about the x-men and things like that but i'm also sure that you know there's commercial pressures there's all this thing and I think this is true of any media that that moves these things along. You know, we can look back and say, oh, that was just this incredible feminist work or, you know, work on racial justice or things like that. And there probably was an intention of that. There probably was also a reason why people thought they could make a buck doing that at the time, you know. Um, and I think you're right that the, the memory of it is probably always going to be a little cut through rose-colored glasses. Yeah. And, like, again, I do think that, like, it—, it it's very clear in their work and in the statements that they made both later in life and, you know, at the time that it was important to them to uh, tell stories about social justice, like I said, and to tell stories um, that uh, were against bigotry and especially because they knew that their audience was young people but how much of that was at play when they wrote this and drew this one particular issue of the Fantastic Four that I don't, I don't know. And there may actually be research on that. There, I'm sure that there is much more in-depth research on that. And right. um, it's just, I don't have, unfortunately, I wish I had a, a pithy answer, yeah. but I don't. Um, one, by the way, a, a correction I want to make um, that looking back over my notes, I realized uh, the character who really comes out of the black exploitation era is more Luke Cage. I think that some of that is is um, yeah. uh, Black Panther there. So that, that's a mistake I made. Wanted to make sure to correct. And again, there's some great writers we'll try to link to who've done a lot more about this. And again, it's from a uh, perspective, they can better talk to it than I can. But one thing also I just want to add is um, that just as part of what, what you're saying here, that clearly it's baked in the Stan Soapbox column. Uh, where Stan is making yeah. very clear statements about racial justice and about, you know, uh, why he's writing these things in his, his comic books. Talk a little about that, because that's a recurring thing in the comics themselves, right? Well, he, Stan's soapbox was. I don't know that he'd always necessarily, you know, just jumped into 
talking about bigotry. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, he did run an editorial in 1968, so a bit later than what we're talking. I mean, Black Panther showed up in 66. 68 is not that much later, but the late 60s, really, you really start to see the comic book industry more overtly responding to things like um, the civil rights movement and anti-war protests. Mm-hmm. Um, so he wrote this editorial in 68 and uh, Marvel reprinted it uh, a lot <laughs> lately. I I guess they thought it was relevant mm-hmm. and Marvel, I mean, look, the Marvel, uh, I don't even remember his title, but CEO or whatever, Ike Perlmutter, is very much in bed with Trump. Like, they have they have some uh, skeletons in their closet, mm-hmm. but I do appreciate this editorial. Um, Stan Lee had nothing to do with Ike Perlmutter. Right. Anyway, basically, um, what I, I can just read it. He says, let's lay it right on the line. Bigotry and racism are among the deadliest social ills plaguing the world today. But unlike a team of costume supervillains, they can't be halted with a punch in the snoot or a zap from a ray gun. <laughs> the only way to destroy them is to expose them, to reveal them for the insidious evils they really are. The bigot is an unreasoning hater, one who hates blindly, fanatically, indiscriminately. If his hang-up is black men, he hates all black men. If a redhead once offended him, he hates all redheads. If some foreigner beat him to a job, he's down on all foreigners. He hates people he's never seen, people he's never known, with equal intensity, with equal venom. Now, we're not trying to say it's unreasonable for one human being to bug another. But although anyone has the right to dislike another individual, it's totally irrational, patently insane to condemn an entire race, to despise an entire nation, to vilify an entire religion. Sooner or later, we must learn to judge each other on our own merits. Sooner or later, if man is ever to be worthy of his destiny, we must fill our hearts with tolerance. For then, and only then, will we be truly worthy of the concept that man was created in the image of God, a God who calls us all his children. Yeah. And that that's, I think, the most famous one. There's definitely some other ones. Um, there's one, one that I just want to read a couple quick lines of because it's <clears throat> you know an issue that people bring up all the time today where he says... Talking about how there are people who, quote, take great pains to point out that comics are supposed to be escapist reading and nothing more. But somehow I can't see that way. It seems to me that a story without a message, however subliminal, subliminal, is like a man without a soul. Even the most escapist literature of all, old-time fairy tales, contained moral and philosophical points of view. Uh, And then it goes on to later say, None of us lives in a vacuum. None of us is untouched by the everyday events around us. Events which shape our stories just as they shape our lives. Our tales can be called escapist, but just because something's for fun doesn't mean we have to blanket our brains while we read it. Um, and, and so to me, I, I love that one as well, because the, the first one you write is such a great statement of that you know, he's very clearly taking a, and Marvel Comics is taking a stance on the, the issues of the day in, in that regard. Um, personally, as a redhead, I'm very glad he calls out the <laughs> anti-ginger bias in the world. Um, I'm kidding, obviously. You know. <laughs> but, um, but also I love that he, you know, today we again and again hear this idea of why can't comic books just be good escapist fun? Why are we putting all these politics into them now? I, I love that Stan Lee is saying very clearly in the books themselves that he's being very intentional about these messages and that he wants them to reflect the stories of the day in terms of civil rights, war and peace, youth rebellion, etc. 
I feel like that's a really good segue to X-Men. Yeah, yeah, let's start talking about the X-Men, because that's... I'm glad that we talked about some of the others first, because I think X-Men is the only one, but clearly... When you think about political comics in the 60s and, and Stan Lee, X-Men's what comes to mind. So tell us about the X-Men and their origin and sort of how it plays into all this. So the X-Men, um, it's a team book right away. The original lineup is uh, Cyclops, Marvel Girl, who is better known as Jean Grey, um, Iceman, uh, Angel, and Beast. Um, and uh, the So no Wolverine to start have... with. Oh, no, no. Wolverine, um, he first shows up as a Hulk villain. <laughs> wow. Yeah, um, which is always, it's just always so wild to me. Because mm-hmm. um, it's not it's not where you would expect to find him. Um, I want to say that is in the late 70s, but I'm checking right now because of magic of Google. Mm-hmm. Uh not the late 70s. Uh, it was 74. Okay. So I had the decade, right? But still, long um, past war starting. So, so back to the X-Men themselves. Right. And he does not, he does not become um, a member of the X-Men until the sort of revival of the X-Men um, under Chris Claremont, which is also in the 70s. Mm. Um, but when we're talking about the Silver Age, uh, it is four identical white guys and a girl. <laughs> I mean, okay... Angel has wings and Beast has big hands and feet. Like he wasn't even a furry blue guy then. He just had big hands and feet. Um, but uh, they are led by Professor X, uh, Charles Xavier, who is a telepath in a wheelchair. And um, Which, they. Uh, quick question I want to interject in because it's an issue obviously that matters a lot to me. Is Professor X the first time we have a notably disabled character appear well i guess daredevil had come up before but that's one's less vi- forgive the pun less visible um not an intentional pun but is professor x the first time we have a character in a wheelchair who's a regular ongoing hero well actually the x-men predate daredevil by a few months oh, okay um uh so that's actually you you have opened a can of worms here <laughs> um called the doom patrol uh so just as a, a sidebar and then we can kind of get back into um x-men but uh so x-men number one uh came out in september 1963 and the whole idea is that they are mutants and they're considered freaks by society which again it's like two guys and a girl who look absolutely completely normal except scott has to wear red sunglasses and then a guy with big hands and feet and a guy with wings that he can hide under his jacket. But they're like, society hates us. Right. And it's like, okay, fine. Um, a few months earlier, in June of 1963, DC published a comic called, or they introduced a new team called the Doom Patrol. This is a team made up of quote-unquote freaks and outcasts led by a genius in a wheelchair. (laughs) Wow, okay. Who is also a professor or a doctor. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it's it's this really weird synergy um, of these two teams that are very much defined by being outcasts from society, being shunned, considering themselves freaks, 
Um, because, and like the Doom Patrol, none of them were born that way. They all had accidents and various wacky things gave them their powers. Right. Um, but they are very much similarly portrayed as, you know, the powers are a burden as well as a blessing. And they are led by this mastermind who is in a wheelchair. Um, and the thing is, they publish so close to each other, uh, June and September, the lead time in comics, like you can't publish a comic, you can't read a comic in June and have a copy of it on the stands in September. Right. It's just not possible. Um, so the fact that they are so similar, like literally the X-Men fight the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants and the Doom Patrol fights the Brotherhood of Evil. <laughs> wow. They're okay. just not mutants. Like it's so, and so some people have questioned, like, was there some plagiarism going on? How could there have been plagiarism going on? Uh, one of the creators of the Doom Patrol once said, oh, yeah, Stan, first he said, no, it wasn't possible. And then he was like, no, Stan Lee totally copied me on purpose. And then he was like, I probably didn't. I'm going to love the idea that there are two junior in- interns who are best friends or partners or something like that who are just getting together to have coffee and be like, okay, what are you guys working on? What are we working on? Cool. Let's share ideas and, like, inspire our bosses. <laughs> I mean, it's absolutely possible. Somebody could have seen pages from somebody else somewhere. Right. Like, that's totally within the realm of possibility. But it's also interesting because the Doom Patrol is very much um, the most Marvel-like of DC's comics at the time. Mm. Again, because these are characters who are like, we are outcasts from society and we hate having our powers and we feel like freaks right. and we're very, and they fought, they fought with each other all the time. Like it reads like a Marvel book that <laughs> DC just happened to publish. It's wonderful. I love the early Doom Patrol. Um, but to go back to Marvel, so you don't rightfully <laughs> make fun of me again for always running off to DC. Um, yeah. So we have, we have the X-Men who protect a world that hates and fears them. Mm. Um, and uh, it, I think it's very, very crucial that these characters, unlike any of the other ones that we're talking about here, um, except, I guess, theoretically Black Panther, because he was born to be a king, um, they, they're they born that way. Right. You know, the, it's, it's ingrained in them that they are mutants. Like, it's, it's in their DNA. They didn't have an accident they didn't go into space they didn't you know build something or train or have a traumatic experience i mean they've had many traumatic experiences but this is right this is just part of who they are this is part of um how they were created which yeah i think that seems very intentional and a very important part of who they are yeah and i mean the other thing about you know the x-men as well as so the vast majority of these characters, the Fantastic Four, the Hulk, Spider-Man, Daredevil, all these characters get their powers from radiation. And in these early issues of X-Men, the, there's this idea that mutants are now coming into existence because of radiation, because we've split the atom which is now a thing that the comics have completely done away with. And there are many mutants who are much older than that, mm. um, like Wolverine. But these are all, there is an idea of, um, of uh, intolerance and 
marginalization happening with the X-Men, but it also comes into that larger umbrella of atomic fears right. that is very, very prevalent in the 60s. I was talking before about how you can look at, you can easily tell often what, what generation a particular work of art was created based on some of those things. I think one of them is definitely the origin story. You know, what's what's the thing that people of that generation are most both fascinated by and afraid of? It's probably the thing that create, you know, that later it's DNA science or, you know, whatever it is. Or today it's, um, you know, or our version of it. I think it's another fascinating thing to look at. Like it keeps evolving generation to generation. Oh, yeah. And you can absolutely trace this with like, I like to look at, you know, the the chemicals that splash in Matt Murdock's face and give him his power, blind him and give him his powers. That changes every time they tell it. And it's always whatever we happen to be most afraid of. But you can also very easily trace it um, with the spider that bites Peter Parker. Yeah, no, I remember in um, Spider-Verse, it's like it's a. it's like a genetically it becomes like it's, now it's like genetically modified spiders or whatever it is you know instead of radiated spiders. yeah it's like a gmo it's like a eating a tomato out of season yeah exactly <laughs> so so let's talk about what is it that makes it seems again here that with the x-men this is the perfect time and place for them to come up come about you know and again it's that chicken and egg thing this is the time when the the beatnik age has been going for a long time we're starting to move into the hippie age the idea of there being people who really identify themselves as counterculture and as looked down upon seems very much a part of this, as well as with civil rights, we're talking a lot about why it's wrong to hate people because of something they're born with. Um, and I'm, I'm missing that had to be very intentional of creating people who are, as you said, like the Fantastic Four are weird, they're different, but they're beloved. Here, the X-Men are, are despised, they're hated because of how they're born. That's a very intentional choice, it seems. Yeah, and I don't know that it, I mean, you know, all these things were sort of, a lot of these things were sort of created in a vacuum. Like some of these characters are supporting characters to pre-existing ones. You know, mm-hmm. Black Panther shows up in an issue of Fantastic Four. Black Widow shows up in an Iron Man story, etc. But for the most part, you know, it wasn't, they weren't necessarily approaching it as a holistic universe. Right. But I do think it's it's very telling still that um, if you if you live in the Marvel Universe, and you have superpowers, if you got them because you fell into a vat of something or you went into space on the wrong day, you're good. It's it's all good. Everybody loves you. But if you were born with them, all of a sudden you're a monster and everybody hates you. (laughs) Right. I do think there's a certain amount of um, rational irrationality to Mm -hmm. it, like, because it's the thing you can't control. Like, well, I just won't go into space. But you can't do anything about your genes. But I'm probably thinking about it harder than any of the faceless bigots in random Marvel comics have ever thought about it. Very true. Uh, very true. But but yeah, I, I mean, and I do. I I want. I feel. I feel bad because we're overlooking Spider Man so oh, much, and he already gets enough of that. <laughs> <laughs> that old Parker luck. <laughs> Um, like Spider-Man is very, very important and he is a very important character in particular for that idea of being a preteen or a teen and feeling, um, alienated and ostracized and like nothing ever goes right for you. This is a non-DC related tangent you want to go on, so I'm going to totally encourage it. So (laughs) let's put a pin in the X-Men. Let's talk about Peter Parker. Well, no, I just, I just wanted to like acknowledge that like the X Men are not the only characters like this. The Hulk as well. They are very much, you know, they are very much metaphors for 
feeling like you don't fit right. in and feeling like you're nobody sees the real you um and having these especially i mean especially the hulk obviously having these big feelings that you don't know what to do with and they're gonna explode um and like there is a reason that spider-man was a hit right away and remains one of the three most important superheroes and most famous and beloved superheroes in the world and it is because he he appeals so deeply on that level um but yeah i just i just wanted to give him his due because no, for sure he gets pushed around enough. um and he, uh, i mean you mentioned spider-verse spider-verse updates that in such a beautiful and perfect way yeah. and like just brings that idea of how relatable the character is supposed to be into the new millennium mm-hmm. Um, and it's a perfect movie, and everybody should watch it. It is one of my absolute favorite comic book movies. It, it, for nothing else, I, I'm a dirty casual. We've talked about this a lot. This is why I'm so glad I have you as a resource. I don't know. I I have trouble reading comic books. My my brain is not very good at the visual art kind of formats. And generally, like, animated stuff is hard for me to under, understand in the same way. I've never seen a movie be so in love with the fact that it's based on a comic book and be so very clearly trying to bring the pages of a comic book to life the way Spider-Verse does. Yeah. Uh, as well as the fact that you and I talked about this on, offline. It's the first time, I think, that we've officially seen that at least one version of Peter Parker is explicitly canonically Jewish, which I love. Yes. Um, yes. Um, he has been coded as Jewish for a very, very, very long time. Uh, but yeah, Peter B. Parker uh, has a Jewish wedding. Yeah. He's steps on a glass at the ceremony and i felt a lot of feelings yeah, about it me too <laughs> me too and and i think that also peter parker seems to represent what you're talking about before like i don't know if an eight-year-old cares about the struggles of a kid in high school um but that a 14 year old absolutely would be even maybe a 12 or a 13 year old like spider-man peter parker seems very much a kid written uh a character written for a slightly older audience yeah Absolutely. You graduate from Superman to Spider-Man. And am I also right in saying that, and tell me if I'm wrong here, but my, my impression is like Reed Richards had a pretty good life before the stuff happened to him. Same with Ben and things like that. Peter Parker's a kid who was already kind of the the nerdy kid who gets pushed around by the school bullies before the spider bot bit him. And it's not that he is ostracized and awkward because of being Spider-Man, but he's now doubly so. Yeah, well, he's also an orphan, um, and uh, they he, they have money troubles. Like he's got a bunch of problems going on, um, and being Spider Man doesn't actually fix any of them. Like he's still picked on at school. He can't really. He makes some money off of it. He takes the photos uh, of himself, right. but his problems are compounded by being Spider-Man rather than solved by them. But it also gives him behind the mask. He has the freedom to say what he wants. And, and like there's, there's a very palpable physical and verbal freedom to being Spider-Man yeah, because he's sassy. You, he's sassy. He, you can jump all over the place and mouth off to bullies and, back it up mm-hmm. like what could be more fun than being spider-man and what could suck more than being peter parker yeah. <laughs> and that's the magic of it 
Oh, I love him. <laughs> you know, he he's definitely a fantastic character and I I'm I'm glad that he is he is one it seems that has crossed over so well um from, you know, some of his on-screen appearances to to now being a, an essential part of the MCU to being a part of the Spider-Verse and we'll see where all that's going to go. Um Yeah. So pulling us back to the X-Men though. Um yes. I think one of the things that people most talk about and that has again been somewhat there's obviously some real truth to it, but there's also it's been mythologized and changed is this idea that Professor X and Magneto represent, like, if they're both representatives of an oppressed group, that the two of them represent very different approaches to oppression. Um, and I think today that many people now, we sort of read a lot of it back into that and say that they're supposed to be stand-ins for Martin Luther King and, and Malcolm X and things like that. And then a lot of that has been sort of added over time. Talk to us about where it starts, because I think a lot of people may not understand that while there's obviously elements of that, the origins is, is not quite what people often think. Um, yeah, well, so first of all, I just think it's funny that we're actually recording this on Martin Luther King Jr. Yep. Day. So very much in- um, very important. Fitting. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, people, people tend to boil uh, that conflict down um, the conflict between Professor X and Magneto down to that specific divide. And it's overly simplistic in many ways. Um, it's overly simplistic, obviously, when you're talking about the actual civil rights movement. And it, I think it, it, it pulls from a really sanitized version mm-hmm. of Martin Luther King that only really looks at the, the, the things that he said that today we do not find challenging. Right. The things that he said that white America finds the easiest to swallow. Right. It's the I have a dream speech, but it's not letter from Birmingham jail. Right. That's a really good way of putting it. And uh, so it's. I think it does a disservice to to both of these real men um, to uh, bottle it down to that. And it also is not particularly accurate um, for the comic book characters. It's certainly not something that was intentional Mm -hmm. at the time that they were created. Um, When they were created, I mean, I mentioned before, Magneto leads the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. He was not created as a nuanced supervillain. He was a fellow mutant, but he believed in mutant supremacy. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a case of we need to fight or we will be destroyed. It was a case of we're just better. So I'm going to kill all the humans. And he was a cackling supervillain and he had layers and he had a goofy hat and, and he's so much fun. Like he was a great supervillain right from the get go because he was larger than life and really entertaining, but all the nuance of his approach and even the, that, that came later, um, And even the idea uh, of him being a Holocaust survivor was not a thing until I think the early 80s. Um, So, and also, uh, like, as as, uh, we were discussing this before we recorded, um, I did a a little bit of research into it. And there's some really interesting quotes from Chris Claremont about this, who uh, wrote the X-Men for, like, basically all the seventies and eighties um, where he was in responding to the idea that the, the characters are meant to be MLK and Malcolm X. He was like, 
oh no it was like when i was writing in the 70s it was way too close to the 60s mm-hmm. and like there, there was no lens of history to look back at that through it was just recent assassinations and it would have been really disrespectful of me as a white man to even attempt right. that yeah i think that i think that's such an important point and you again have to remember all the ways in which these different stories are mythologized and changed and that we today have a very mythologized view of both Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. But then also that at the time, it was almost going the other way. Other way, And that sort of one of the things that I, I've gotten, the more I've dug into this, is that clearly they weren't trying to just write about these two characters, but that conversations about, you know, assimilation versus separation and, you know, peaceful resistance versus fighting back were very much a part of the cultural context. And that, but in a way, I mean, like that to two, you know, fairly liberal Jewish men from New York, Malcolm X would not have been seen in any heroic way, probably, that that the media at that time was still writing about him in incredibly negative ways. And I don't think for a moment that they were thinking about Malcolm X specifically as sort of a stand-in for uh, Magneto. But I know that at that time, there was a lot of discussion about, you know, any hint of black pride being seen as like, kind of the same way today people get offended at, you know, Black Lives Matter and say, oh, does that it should be all lives matter instead. You'd have people take the black pride movement and start talking about it in terms of like, oh, does it mean that, you know, white people are bad, stuff like that. And, and so when you have these two different groups that are talking about how they fight oppression, the bad guys being the ones who are like, no, we're better. There's got to be elements of that cultural conversations playing in. But yeah, I think the idea that therefore it's, it's Martin Luther King and Malcolm X is just incredibly simplistic, both for the comic books and for the history itself. Yeah. And like, quite frankly, like, Magneto could not have been depicted as a nuanced or uh, sympathetic villain in the 60s because that was literally forbidden by the comics code. Villains had to be either completely evil or completely redeemed by the end of the story. Like, oh, I made a big mistake. I'm so sorry, Thor. Please take me in. Um, there was no gray area. It literally was not allowed. The comics would not have been given the seal to be published with. Um, and so Magneto is this very outlandish, like scenery chewing villain, which he's still very outlandish <laughs> and loves snacking down on scenery. And that's why he's so great. Um, but today we see him in a much more sympathetic light. We understand his point of view. And he's like him and Killmonger are often connected in that kind of way of like, the different approaches to fighting oppression and things like that. And from what you're saying, it sounds like none of that is in the original. No, no. I mean, again, he's a very fun character. And like, yeah, like you were saying that the sort of seeds of uh, that debate between assimilation and uh, what we might phrase as resistance now, Mm -hmm. um, but at the time might be better described Magneto's behavior would be better described as supremacy. Um, That's definitely in there. Um, But I mean, you know, we're talking about two guys who changed their names to sound less Jewish. So yeah, (laughs) they're going to, they're going to be on board with the assimilation train to a large extent. I would, I would guess again, I mean, you know, we can't really say like what, how they felt about assimilating, how they felt about um, their own culture, which was also much 
more, um, these were men who lived in New York and that's where their culture was. So it was still a diaspora, but not as scattered and global as, uh, we might think of it today. Um, and we, you know, we can't really say how they would have felt about Malcolm X unless there's a quote from one of them about him, which I, there probably isn't. Yeah. And it's fun to like, it's fun to think about, you know, is this the Magneto they intended or do they want to write him as a more sympathetic character, but couldn't because the comic code, but, but all that's just conjecture. We don't have any idea. We just have what's on the page. Yeah. And like they, I mean, they, they wrote X-Men for, you know, how, and drew, um, they created X-Men for the silver age, but, um, a lot of what we think of as what, who the X-Men are and how they work is very much a Chris Claremont creation right. of later decades. Um, the Silver Age X-Men is a very different animal in the same way that like, I mean, he's a more minor character, but the Silver Age Daredevil is very, very different from <laughs> what he would become in the 80s, which is what we see in like the TV show. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that, that of course these characters are going to evolve. And of course, we're going to read back into them what we want. One thing I, I wonder about, I don't know if you would know about this or if any of our listeners do, one thing I think has definitely happened a lot in media is a character is written as a villain, and the writer thinks of them as a villain. But for whatever reason, audiences wind up identifying with them far more than may have been intended. Like the queer coding of Disney villains, I think is a great example of mm-hmm. this, but it happens in lots of other places. And I do wonder if on some level there was some sense of you know, people from whatever their background or whatever their, their, the movements they're part of who do sort of read Professor X and think, okay, but, but maybe this Magneto guy has a point, even though he's written ridiculously, you know, and that there starts to be some of that, like, the writer didn't intend to be sympathetic, but people are finding some sympathy in him. And, you know, again, it's chicken and the egg and who the heck knows where it starts. But I wonder sort of how that plays in all this, because, I mean, today I think of Magneto as probably in the top three, if not the number one, most sympathetic villains that I know of, you know, where he's the closest to, in a lot of ways, I think he's a lot more right than Professor X. Even if sometimes I disagree with his methods or things like that, but that sounds wildly different than, than where the character started. Oh yeah, for sure. And it's also, I mean, it's wildly different from where both of them started because Professor X a over the decades has done a lot of really sketchy ass things, mm-hmm. um, which cause us to lose a lot of sympathy for him. Like he's, he's faked his death like a hundred times. He's, he manipulates people, which is easy to do when you're a telepath. Like there, there's a lot of, you know, they've, they've pulled a lot of skeletons out of that closet. It's like when you start with these two characters where one is a paragon of good and one is a, paragon of evil i don't think i think that's an oxymoron but you know what i mean one represents good and one represents evil and then you start to unpack them and pull skeletons out of the closet the good one's only going to have bad skeletons because it can't be like oh one time he saved a puppy (laughs) okay surprise and the bad one's only going to have if not necessarily good things and we do find out about like genuinely good things that magneto has done in his life but also sympathetic things um but part of so it's partially that like as the comics have gone on more and more stories have been told that show professor x in not so great a light but there's also the fact that at 
the time, the fact that he was an authoritative white man was enough to be like, he's right and good. And the, it's sort of like, um, what we've talked about in the past of the way that like superheroes would gaslight their girlfriends all the time during this era, but it was never depicted as a flaw because of course they had every right to do that. They had to maintain their secret identity. And even though he is a mutant, he still is working along these axes of privilege that allow him to get away with behavior that nowadays we're like, dude, what the hell? This was the age when psychological hospitals were supposed to, you know, fix people and lobotomies were a perfectly good part of that. And, and, you know, other things like that. And so having a character who, like Professor X, who very early on is using mind control to fix the mind of someone who is, you know, a criminal or something like that or, or uh, has a different ideas than he does, that seems heroic and great. And then today we're like, oh, my God, that's that's awful. Um, yeah, I mean, there's even, I think it's the first issue, There's a pa- he has a passing thought about how he's secretly in love with Jean, who is a teenager under his care. And that was very quickly dropped because what the hell? Yeah. But that's a thing that, you know, at the time, like they threw that in there. Like, well, I say they, but um, we don't know where that came from. Um, because a lot of, uh, if you look at um, a lot of the Lee and Kirby collaborations without the words, mm-hmm. um they become, I don't know that I want to say more feminist, but they become less chauvinistic. Um, There's a a wonderful blog called Kirby Without Words um, that literally takes the words off and will sometimes, you know, dig it, like where where the person who runs it can post um, Kirby's original pencils where he would like write in the margins what he thought the characters might be saying. Oh, interesting. And then... Yeah, and so Lee would either keep that or adjust it or he'd come up with something else entirely. And so you'll literally have panels. A lot of this is Fantastic Four stuff, but you'll literally have panels where, like, Sue is using her powers, and it's just a panel of Sue using her powers, but then, as Kurt B. drew it, but then Lee will add a speech bubble from off, from the side that's Reed going, that's it, keep it up, blast him. Oh, interesting. Like, she needs help and so i do wonder like throw away creepy throwaway lines like professor x is about gene i feel like that's probably more of a stan line than a jack yeah. one no that, that makes sense and i mean even we, we talked about we've talked about in prior episodes and a bit in the, the last episode you know the incredible misogyny of the marriage obsessed lois lane always chasing after clark kent and then that just the action of it being peter parker you know pining over the girl that that's a big step forward but clearly there's still a lot of ways to go um yeah there's there's a lot of there's still a lot of chauvinism at play but i'll just say that when jack kirby did create a character who was based on his wife she was six foot five and her name was big barda and she literally just picks her husband up and throws him over her shoulder (laughs) whenever she wants and he's super into it so you know Jack liked the strong good, woman. Good for them. Good for them. Uh, one quick follow-up question on that, and then I want to say something more about Professor X, and then we can move on. Um, obviously, a theme that I know we've talked about and that you've done some great writing on on your on your blog is about the way women here, women superhero, 
is about the way women superheroes are portrayed, particularly in terms of their outfits and the degree to which, um, in terms of their outfits and the way that their bodies react to gravity, for example, um, mm-hmm. and, and an incredible sexualized manner of some of these characters. What's happening with that in the Silver Age? Are we still getting a lot of boob armor and, you know, busts that have never seen gravity before and, and things like that? Or are we having more, less sexualized, more realistic depiction of women characters? Oh, it was, it was very tame because of the comics code. Mm, right. um, yeah, so they couldn't really depict super duper sexy outfits or really, like the comics code is literally like, don't go crazy with the boobs, like make them normal, right. guys. Um, and I should caveat that normal has a very, very wide range. Of but I, I think you know what I mean in terms of yeah. eye candy and not showing a diversity of body the, type. The Barbie level um, of this human being would literally fall over. We're not quite at that level anymore. No, um, that was that was part of what spurred the comics code that uh, comics were getting so visibly lecherous and that is pulled way the hell back for decades it's really in the 70s that we start to see sexier outfits coming in or even the late 60s mm. um and uh sexier outfits sexier poses sexier angles there's a lot of more butt shots right. um which is also in part because they're experimenting worth where to sort of quote unquote put the camera. Um, but yeah, at this time um, it's very tame. Um, and also like a lot of these artists are very well-trained draftsmen, which you don't always get in modern comics. Right. Um, Kirby was not a particular, he didn't, he was not a beautiful artist. Mm. He's an incredible artist. He, his work is, groundbreaking and astonishing and like some of the stuff that he did like he played around with photography in his work like you have these cosmic scenes in fantastic four where like the the characters are drawn over photographs and he does collages and it's just amazing but in terms of the human figures that he's drawing they're all kind of ugly <laughs> they don't look great yeah that makes sense um yeah, so nobody's like, you know who's hot? Jack Kirby's Sue yeah. Storm. <laughs> I can see that. I do want to say one other thing about Professor X, because I think we um, we run him down some, and I, I'm a big believer in that. One of the very first episodes of Superhero Ethics was talking about all the ethical problems with Professor X. Um, I, I do want to say, and this is one that is dear to my own heart as a disabled person, having that character in the wheelchair is something that is a very important seminal moment as well for disability issues. Um uh, I've worked for a long time in disability politics. I even did that before I lost my leg. And if you go back and read some of the first stuff about, um, you know, disability awareness and disability rights and even just like um, stuff that was like being given to soldiers coming home from Vietnam who are now in wheelchairs, like people were giving them Professor X-Men comics as a way of like, look, here's a hero in a wheelchair. Um, he features very prominently in a lot of uh, the literature and, and, and the sort of being referenced. And for me, it's particularly important because something I've talked about that is very rarely seen is what we often see if we have a disabled character in science fiction or fantasy or comic books or whatever it is, is that the magic or the science or the radiation or whatever it is cures their disability. And so that their power comes from, you know, Matt Murdock is blind, but really through his like echolocation, whatever it is, he can basically 
perceived the world around him even better than most, you know, seeing people could. And, you know, all these other characters who, like, you know, through their powers were able to suddenly move so much better than anybody else. The fact that Professor X does everything he does while still in a wheelchair, um, and that's entirely the power of his mind, and it's not, he's not disabled, he's not powerful because of his disability, and we can talk about how later movies would play with that in kind of really gross ways, but also he doesn't have to overcome his disability. He just is a disabled person who's also a superhero, is something I think that was, I don't know how groundbreaking it was, but it was incredibly important and, and still has a lot of relevance today. No, I think it's super important. I can't think of I'm going to be mad when I uh, inevitably come up with another character. Oh, Dr. Midnight. Mm. Um, Dr. Midnight is a Golden Age DC character who um, is very much in the the Daredevil uh, line of character. He's a blind character, but his powers allow him to see under certain conditions. So, you know. There are versions of Oracle um, but, and Barbara Gordon that do some good versions of that, but then they also take that in some pretty terrible ways in different writings and things like that. But yeah, it's, it's, yeah, and of course that's much later. Like I can't think of a character, a major character who predates um, Professor X, who is a dis- besides Doctor Midnight, who's pretty obscure, who is a a disabled superhero at all, but b as you said, a disabled superhero whose superpower doesn't mitigate their disability but i can think of a lot of instances of like the the trope of the evil disabled character so it's also i mean i he professor x is also super important because he's not that like again we did dunk on him for like 10 minutes and he's done but like he's a hero and he was presented unquestionably as a hero when he was introduced. And just for anybody who also just just really kind of connect the dots about why that matters so much, the problem is that most of the time in media, disability is presented as a problem to be cured. And so the disabled person is, and I'm, I'm using awful terms and I'm, I'm saying them intentionally, um, you know, but that, that a disabled person is like broken or needs to be fixed or whatever it is or something like that. And that a lot of the disability rights movement, disability pride movement has really been about like, no, we are diff- I hate the term dis- differently abled, and many people do as well, but that concept of, you know, this is difference, it is not brokenness, and not every disabled person is yearning for the cure, you know, to be fixed. And so that when all the media is about, wouldn't it be great if science or magic or whatever it is could allow you to be cured, it just feeds into this very awful narrative that, that Professor X breaks. So just wanted to kind of make that yeah. point. And oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I've seen, um, I saw a really interesting discussion on Tumblr. So unfortunately, I cannot source it because it was just a bunch of people I don't know talking about it. Um, But uh, basically making the case, and this case has been made um, a a few places. I want to say that um, the podcast, uh, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men has made it multiple times. Um, But actually, I I know that they have, um, but uh, that... You know, we've, we talked, we sort of touched on the idea of the mutant metaphor um, as a metaphor for any marginalized group. Mm-hmm. Um, and we linked it to the civil rights movement at the time. Um, and if people often read early X-Men as a metaphor for race. Um, and in the early 2000s, it was often read as a metaphor for queerness, especially 
you know, there's that scene in the second X-Men movie where Bobby's parents are like, have you tried not being a right. mutant? Conversion therapy, uh, which, nonsense like that. Right. With, you know, a, a gay director, like it's not subtle. Um, and uh, all of those, you know, all of those uh, analogies have their place, but none of them are perfect fits. And there is no perfect fit because it's, it's a fantasy. But I have seen people argue that um, disability is the best metaphor. Mm. Um, and the, this conversation was sparked by the scene in the third X-Men movie where Rogue comes in all excited and says, I just heard there's a cure. Is that true? And Storm says, there is, we don't need to be cured because there's nothing wrong yes. with us. But Storm and Rogue have very different experiences of being a mutant um, where Storm is a goddess, has been worshipped as a goddess and has no drawbacks to her power whatsoever and Rogue can never touch another human right. being. Um, and it, uh, the discussion went on to sort of talk about how you know, disability is such a wide umbrella and it covers so many, um, so many different things mm. that, you know, somebody with chronic pain might feel very differently about certain issues that than someone with hearing loss. Right. No, that that's a great point. It's one I, had, I hadn't thought of that terms, but one thing that just occurs to me there that you could go so deep on is just the idea that, um, in the disability community, there's often, I'm talking broad generalizations here, but there's often a real split between people who are born with disabilities versus those who develop disabilities at some point in life. And I'm in the second category. I lost my leg in an accident in my adulthood. Very different than someone who's born needing a, um, I should say, someone who's born um, with a different kind of limb or without a limb or something like that. And that applies for all disabilities, which to me is an interesting take on what we we're saying before about how the X-Men are born with their issues rather than the Fantastic Four or something like that who who have that happen to them. So just another great parallel. Um, and I think it's kind of a nice way to kind of wrap up our discussion about the X-Men because to me, I think one of the reasons why I love these characters so much and why I think they're so beloved uh, and have been so successful generation after generation is that it's written in a way that you can... You can read civil rights onto them. You can read queer rights onto them. You can read disability rights onto them because they're really speaking about a lot of, you know, pretty uh, essential truths about a lot of these things. And and it's not just to praise them. I mean, you know, they're if they're supposed to be a metaphor for race, the fact that they're all white is certainly a big problem from the beginning. Mm-hmm. There's lots of issues like that. The um, uh, I'm glad you mentioned the uh, Explaining the X-Men podcast. A lot of my concepts on this were shaped by it. I was planning to mention them as well, and we'll link to them in the show notes. Um, and they do a great job of pointing out that, that early on, Jean Grey, like all of them have deep, interesting personalities, and Jean Grey's personality is she's the girl. Um, and that she's often seen yeah. like doing the dishes at like the, I mean, really, we're not fully liberated here yet by any means. But even with all that, the fact that the X-Men can continually be seen as like metaphors for these major issues in our society about assimilation and justice and fighting oppression and things like that is i mean it really it to me is a great statement about like just how powerful that story is yeah and i think i mean i think that the this to to bring it back to this sort of overall topic it really does 
explain why all of these characters are so enduring. They, you know, the X-Men speak to these important questions about bigotry and marginalization and acceptance and, and feeling othered. Um, and Spider-Man speaks to insecurity and alienation and the Hulk absolutely speaks to, um, alienation and, and anger and loss of control. All of these, you know, the, the reason these characters were successful, they weren't flash in the pan characters like Lee and Kirby and Ditko and all the other people who were involved in their creations we're really tapping into something that is very deeply relatable in the same way, you know, again, that sort of Marvel stocking trade in the same way that DC taps into, we want to believe a man can fly and we want to see someone and read about someone who knows what it's like to feel like a loser. Right. We want both of those things. And that's why these characters endure. Yeah. No, I think that's a great point. And I think um, there's a lot of discussion now about with the X-Men returning to Marvel, if they'll appear in the MCU. And there's been a lot of discussion about who that should be and how they're going to be cast and things like that. One of the discussions that I'm seeing going forward that I think could be really interesting, could be really awful if it's done badly, but if done right, could be really interesting, is that if you start by the idea of the X-Men existing in the modern day, you really can't have Eric be a Jewish person in the Holocaust anymore because he would just be too old. Um, and so the one version I've seen being floated is the idea of that, that that maybe we're going to race flip the characters and make them forget about them being metaphors, that the horrors that he goes through is racism in the American South or perhaps that he's South African and he's born during apartheid or whatever it is. And I, to me, I love ideas like that. Again, they can be done very badly. They have to be done very, you know, really don't have white writers for them, please, if you go that direction. But just the idea that, I mean, the Holocaust obviously is a unique moment in history and comparing it to anything else is, is can be very problematic. But the idea that Eric has had this incredibly traumatic moment of the utter brutality and evil of oppression in a way that someone else who's like him hasn't had in Professor X... I like the idea that you could translate that to other moments in history and other times. Yeah, I mean, sadly, uh, the the Holocaust was a unique moment, but it did not spring from a unique pattern of human behavior. Mm -hmm. um, I I literally I, I just like that way of finished. It. Yeah, I just finished reading um, the book Cast C A S T E by Isabel Wilkerson, which is amazing, and very, uh, very intense, um, but it talks about the caste systems um, in the U.S., um, it, which are, is a racial caste system, um, and in India, uh, and in Nazi Germany. And oh, interesting. Draws, yeah, uh, it draws parallels between them, and one thing that it talks about at length is that um, the Nazis based a lot of what they did on the American South. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me, unfortunately. So yeah, I I I'm sort of of two minds about like there are there are legitimately um, so few Jewish characters in comics, yeah, like that's, vanishingly that's few, the and they are yeah they are actively 
being erased. Like Harley Quinn is was Jewish, but her show makes anti-Semitic jokes yeah. and the character all of a sudden became only half Jewish. And like the, there, there's like a half a dozen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I am torn between not wanting to lose that, but you know, obviously the reality of, yeah, you're right. He would be too old. And also there are other very important stories that still really, really need to be told and other voices that need to be heard. And, need to be heard in the mouth of a prominent character so yeah it's a complicated question for sure and i mean and and certainly as awful as the holocaust is it's not the only moment of horrific anti-semitism you could still have eric be jewish experience anti-semitism at a different moment in history and and again as a a a white person who is only half jewish myself i'm not the one to arbitrate that by any means but i just I just love that these are the kind of conversations we can have, you know, about saying, here are these archetypes. How can they be put in different moments in time? While also respecting that, like, the fact that they're set in one particular moment is very important when there isn't more of that. Um, so, yeah, thank you for bringing up that 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 uh, um, point on the other side of those questions as well. We've gone on for a long time. Um, is there anything else you kind of want to talk about in terms of Marvel and stuff like that? I want to just kind of quick quick touch on what's happening in tv at this moment before we wrap up and a lot of that we can maybe hold to our next conversation um but anything else in terms of what marvel is doing in the 60s and stuff like that i know i think we think we wrung a lot of the juice out of that i will say it's a huge topic i mean literally whole books have been written about this era there are many biographies of both lee and kirby and i'm sure there are biographies of, of ditko and other figures um from the era there are books about each of these characters and their origins um so like this is we're skimming the surface there's so much to say but i think i've said all (laughs) i have the expertise to try to weigh in on for sure so obviously one of the other big moments in comic book history that happens uh in the 60s during this age is that batman goes on television uh with i don't think the first time but batman 66 the adam west batman is certainly one of the most well-known and, and has a very big impact on how these things are thought of going forward. Um, we'll probably save it more for the next episode, but you want to talk just a little bit about um, Batman 66 and what was going on there and the kind of the impact of it? Yeah. So um, Batman, I don't know that he'd been on TV before this. He had been in movie serials. Um But yeah, he was sort of, I mean, he was definitely not as big of a seller as Superman or even, I mean, at this point in time, Lois Lane outsold Batman, which is a statistic I will never shut (laughs) up about my entire life. And if I met Batman, I would say it to his face and laugh Mm -hmm. at him. Um, But uh, yeah, the the show sort of had the freedom to kind of be a bit goofy and it it revitalized the character. I say a bit goofy. It was extremely goofy. Um, it revitalized the character and, and increased his prominence. Um, but yeah, uh, the Batman TV show really steered into camp, mm-hmm. um, which was an idea and an aesthetic that was uh, becoming increasingly popular mm-hmm. uh, as the decade wore on. And you can see that 
spilling out. It definitely um, spills out into his comics. They were absolutely influenced by the show. And there's an interesting kind of give and take where, for example, the producers uh, ratings were falling uh, after season Mm -hmm. two. And so the show producers said, we want to add a girl. And they said to the comics people, come up with a girl character that we can put in the show. And that's why the Barbara Gordon version of that girl was created uh, like on demand by the producers of the TV show, even though she appeared in the comics first. And I wish I could make fun Uh, of that being a thing of the 60s, but that's also literally the origin story of Seven of Nine in Star Trek. So that's something that happens (laughs) in TV a lot. Yeah. Um, And uh, so that, that plot development's kind of went back and forth between the two mediums, but also the campiness um, bled into the comics and just sort of a more, um, and this is true across the whole industry, more of a a sort of psychedelic Mm -hmm. um, visual style, um, some really creative If you want to kind of place it in television history, um, watch an episode of Batman 66 and then watch an episode of the original series of Star Trek because they're both that exact same, like, all primary colors, all sort of like greens and yellows and reds in in bright co- in bright amounts. I have no knowledge of yeah. art, so I'm, desc- I'm not describing it well. But it's it you you really think like the artistic direction of the two shows is exactly the same because it's very similar in, in those kind of regards as well as with the campiness of it. I do wonder how much of that was um, based on technology. Like mm-hmm. those were the colors that could show on those particular like cathode ray televisions. But I don't. I don't know enough about television history to speak to it. Um, Yeah, I I think that's part of it. I think that also just the 60s, like, you know, art cultures going in that direction was part of it. But there again, like, is it because the 60s art culture is shaped by the television? Who knows, you know? Um, Yeah. And the other thing about the Batman show is that it operates on two levels where, um, you know, many, many people have spoken to this. But adults thought it was funny because it was campy and children took it completely seriously. They took it all at face value. They didn't realize that it was tongue in cheek. And they were like, wow, Batman and Robin are amazing heroes. Why are the grownups laughing? I grew up on, on syndication of that. And I remember when, you know, Michael Keaton's Batman came out and people were talking about, it's going to be this like darker version of Batman and not as silly. I was like, wait, that's silly. I I guess so. Um, People were big mad about Michael Keaton's Batman because they were like, no, Batman's funny. What are you doing? And this is hilarious to me because the whole idea of we, – we were talking about this before about how if you grew up with one version of a character, you get locked into like that's the true version. That's the right version. Um, and I feel like this is true with probably many characters. But Batman has to be the one where there's been just the most incredible range. Like I'd love to take someone who's never heard of Batman, you know, probably have to be an alien from another planet or something, and just show them two or three episodes of Batman 66 – and then show them Chris Nolan's uh, The Dark Knight and tell them this is the same character <laughs> because you would never believe it. Like... Yeah. Yeah. I just want to say you've made fun of me for bringing it back to DC, but in this episode about Marvel's Silver Age, you definitely brought up The Dark yep, Knight. <laughs> yep, I will. I will. Batman is always and forever going to be my favorite superhero, even with all of his problems. Um, I'm, I'm right now. <laughs> we have our things that we I'm love. I'm right now watching. Have you seen um, Gotham by Gaslight? Uh, not the movie. I've read yeah, the comic. Yeah, re- the movie's really interesting. And address is one of the things that I know people critique often, which is that in the movie he is 
spending an awful lot of time using his money to address the social ills that cause crime and not just like beating up beating up poor people which i really really like mm-hmm. um but that's a whole other story but yes no i i will always i'm a chris nolan stan i'm a um except when he decided to hate on Occupy in the third movie but i just you know write that oh, out yeah. of time anyway yes now that we've both been called out we've talked about everything from the 60s um <laughs> i I ended our first episode, this is a two-parter, I ended our first part at about 50 minutes, figuring we would, you know, end up at about an hour and a half, an hour, 40 minutes. We're now well into two hours, 15 minutes, so clearly the second one's going to be a little bit longer, um, but I think it's a good point to wrap up. Any other kind of last comments or points you want to make, Jessica? No, I think I, I just, I, like I said, I think that these characters as ridiculous and of their time as they are in so many ways um like i said they really tap into very fundamental Mm -hmm. human emotions and concerns and that's why we're still talking about them for over two hours 60 years later i'm so glad that we are and i feel like there is sort of a you know this is the time where they're moving from being kid stuff to maybe more teenager stuff they're dealing with issues I'm I'm interested in the history of the early spy, the early Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman. I'm not sure if I would have spent much time reading those as a kid or even today. This is this is really the point in the history where I really get on the train. So I'm so glad you especially as our, you know, DC resident person, you know, took took this time to really help us see see the Marvel <laughs> side of it. Um as well as what's going on with DC cuz I think that's just knowing that DC had their own version of the X-Men for a little while uh is fascinating to me in Doom Patrol. Um, and we haven't even touched on Teen Titans, which we'll make sure to talk on the next episode with. So, Jessica, for people who are really loving what you have to say here, they want to hear more of your thoughts, either on um, other podcasts or writings. Where can they find you? Uh, well, I'm on Twitter at Jess underscore Plumber. Um, and I do most of my comics writing at BookRiot.com, where I'm a contributing editor. And I also have a podcast called Flights and Tights, which covers Superman movies. Yeah, and I, I really want to point out... Um, I really want to hype up Jessica's both writings and podcasting. Um, I've really learned a lot by um, a lot of the stuff Jessica's written. And I, I will say that um, as someone who grew up thinking that the Christopher Reeves Superman is the most super of Superman, you crushed my little heart by telling me all the things that are wrong with those <laughs> movies. But I have come to understand why you're saying it. Um, and I, for someone who either loves Superman or just wants to learn more about it, I think the flights and tights, um, the discussions you have are just fantastic. And... I think today Superman is not a character who gets a lot of attention. And so I also really love that you really bring back a lot of the reasons why people love Superman so much. And so I really, I really want to give a recommendation to those as well. Um, So thank you again, Jessica, for being a part of this. To you, the listener, um, what's your take on all we're talking about? Where do you agree with us? Where do you have different views of things? What are your favorite parts of the Silver Age um, comics history? Or is this all totally new to you? Let us know. We love listener feedback. You can join conversations with us on Facebook or Twitter, or you can email us directly. All that can be found if you go to theethicalpanda.com. That's where I keep all the different podcasts I'm doing. Um, Go there, you'll find all the contact information, or you can go to strandedpanda.com. This podcast is a proud member of the Stranded Panda podcast community, and there you can find all of my podcasts, as well as a lot of other great podcasts about DC, Marvel, Star Trek, Star Wars, Lots of other great things. I'm currently doing a series with Ashley Coffin on The Stand, which is a really interesting take on the Stephen King novel. Um, a lot of great stuff there to check out. Last thing I'd say is 
If you like this podcast, if you want to help more people find the podcast, the best thing you can do is leave a review for us. Um, when people are searching for things, they're, you know, the X-Men are being talked about. They want to search for something about X-Men. If they, the high, more reviews we have, the higher we come up in the search engines, the more people will find us and things like that. Um, and then last thing I want to say, just as I'm all in self-promotion and somehow I, I never got a chance to bring this into the conversation. Just a few episodes ago, we actually did a whole conversation with um, J. Scotty St. Clair on Dr. Doom, who you and I never really got to talk about Jessica, but is another interesting example of the villain who emerges in this time. He's the main villain of the Fantastic Four to get started, who very quickly becomes sympathetic in some ways as well. And, and in that episode, we talk about the way Dr. Doom kind of plays with the lines between villain or anti-hero or, or reluctant ally or whatever it is. So check all that out. Please check out all the great stuff Jessica's doing and other things going on in Stranded Panda. And have a great day. <laughs>